0: South East Open window. Enter house. West Get lamp. Move rug. Open trap door.
1: Parallel Lives is your source for atypical analog role playing. Today's episode morning, is about 40, case, 40 minutes, man, minutes long.
0: Sword open, trap turn down north, kill the troll with sword. Drop sword, east, southeast, east. Tie the rope to railing, climb down rope, southeast, get coffin west, south, pray, douse lamp south, north, east, down to canyon bottom. North drop, coffin, open coffin, get scepter, wave scepter, look. Get gold and coffin. Step us up to canyon view, northwest, west, enter house and open bag. Get garlic, west, put coffin, scepter, and the golden case. Open trap door and light the lamp. Down north, east, north, northeast, east, north, get the matches, north, get and screwdriver, push shallow, buttons. south, south, turn the bolt with wrench, south, down, west, south, east, east, climb, down, north, get toward Down south, and south. Get the bell, book candles, enter, hold them, ring the bell, light matches, light the candles with the match, read book, books i south, get the stall, north, up north, else the candles, rub the mirror. west, northeast, but the... Hello, and welcome to Parallel Lives.
2: I'm Hugh. I'm still slightly closer to the microphone than Wednesday, and I have my finger on the keyboard. I
3: don't think you're closer to the microphone than me. I'm like a foot away. You're, like, two feet away. I could eat this microphone. <laughs> oh my God! It's in her mouth! Her
2: jaw's come unhinged!
4: Wednesday, why didn't you ever tell me about this? What of your secret skills? <laughs> I used to keep such careful tracks!
3: your secret, Carrie.
4: <laughs> ah, I feel so betrayed! I thought we were friends!
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess, welcome to Parallel Lives. Hugh just introduced it. I'm Wednesday Sophia. That was Hugh. We've got Carrie here today. What up? And the Charles. Yo! Also known as
5: The Computer. Yes. Today, my first experience with GMing, (laughs) which I (laughs) found mostly positive and fun, but everyone else really mostly got to suffer, and the fact that I enjoyed that, that's something we're going to have to resolve off the air. Today we played... The Ghost Ship... Enyo! The Ghost Ship Enyo! An Out Loud... Text... Adventure... Game... By K... N... Granger... Published in... Oh boy... A uh, time to play 2015 15. by oh, no, Goldfinch Games. Okay, how many rights are reserved? Oh, pretty <laughs> much all of them. Okay, <laughs>
4: pretty much all of them or all of them because like, oh, it's all. Um, are are the resemblances to personages Living
5: and in de- in Dead* intentional or, or coincidental? Uh, interestingly, the uh, copyright information is mute on this fact. Interesting. Oh, Not <laughs> moot, by the way. Ooh, okay, yeah. So, this <laughs> <laughs> can I help you, Charles? It's all right. No, this is—it's a punchy cast. It's—it's it's been a long day of
2: podcasting, and we've only had vegan food for dinner. So, in
4: honor of Portland, in honor of the fact that we're pretty much big queers playing tabletop role-playing games, we ate vegan.
2: This is just a game about a ghost ship in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
4: the reason that we're so punchy is that we just had a very unusual experience, specifically role playing. Role playing, <laughs> but no, actually, actually, really we role
2: playing. I don't actually think this was a role playing game. Yeah.
4: You shut your face. <laughs> we just played a role playing game where we weren't allowed to talk to each other for most of the game, and I think that there's been sort of a, an unleashing now that we can make as many japes as we want because we did actually play a pretty straight ahead, pretty japeless game. For like a hour, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: So forgive us, our Starship Enyo Ghost Ship Enyo is a very, very unusual game in that it is an out loud port of a parser game. Basically, for those of you who are not familiar with parser games, they are, you know, your walk into the darkness, be eaten by a grue, text adventure games of the age of yore. Yore
2: specifically defined as a period of time lasting from the mid-80s till sometime around 1993.
4: Thank you, Q. Uh,
3: The misty past. The misty past. dinosaurs strolled the continent. And they moaned in their low voices, X, Y, Z, Z, Y.
4: So in this game, one person, in this example, Charles, reads a bunch of text And all of the players respond to the text one at a time, taking turns, not really talking to each other during other people's turns, saying, Go port. Use rope on lanyard. Use chisel on doctor?
2: So, you know, all those things that you play tabletop roleplay games to avoid having to (laughs) do.
5: Yeah, having to deal with... Narrow puzzles with extremely prescribed solutions. Uh, A
2: total lack of any meaningful social interaction. uh, A solipsistic world in which there's only you, the protagonist, or the only one who's real.
4: Yeah, so it is a really unusual decision for a role-playing game because one of the things that is really exciting about role-playing games for many, many people is the absence of prescriptive um, solutions for puzzles. Like, there is a certain point in which only the absolute most stubborn GM will not be like, okay, yeah, roll intelligence, fine, cool, you solved the puzzle, without forcing the players to actually, like, sit down and be like, okay, we need to rotate this three quarters of a turn this way, and that kind of thing. Whereas this game, like any computer game, is like, nope, I only accept certain inputs.
5: And in some places, surprisingly
4: few. Yes.
5: And... What I sort of wished playing this was that there was a little bit more flexibility built in for the GM to catch the holes left by the parser. Because I think there's some fruitful ground in this game. I don't inherently object to the adaptation of the text adventure to a more social role-playing form. But I think this one makes some odd choices, like the discouraging talk between players. Giving you those narrow prompts and not giving you any room for, like, Like, I I was the GM. I didn't know anything more about any of those characters than you all did, except what I'd, like, read in the things that they could say to you. But if you went off the map and asked them a question that wasn't specifically covered by a particular answer, I had no ability to ad-lib as these characters. And it feels like that would have been something that was relatively easy to add, especially because the game book is wholly private material basically like no player would ever look at it
2: it seems like a number of problems with this game could have been fixed with a 10 page confidential scenario description just a prose summary of the plot line and who the characters are for the gm to read it does suggest that the gm should read through the whole game but even so i would have trouble actually reading that and trying to put a coherent mind picture together of who and what all the moving pieces of the story are and the lack of, a, uh, you know, two pages of background about the world, because this is set in a fairly complicated science fictional world, and another eight pages about the lives and story of these characters, who you're supposed to then, as the GM, be able to embody. I don't know why that's not there.
4: Should have been there. Especially because just reading through the book is not as straightforward as it sounds, because the book itself is written sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure book, where it's like, okay, did they go west? Cool go to this page. So the pages are not gonna be like in order per se. I
2: I would actually it's it's worse than a choose your own adventure book because Mm. a choose your own adventure book, when followed down any path, forms a coherent story. This doesn't even present a set of material that's coherent because it's actually a it's a room by room description of the game. So you don't read the room at one moment in time, you read the room Plus a bunch of conditional stuff. Yeah, All rooms maybe are like
5: T0 until something moves them.
2: Right, and that that's hard to actually read through and understand.
4: This is especially important to think about, I think, because the game alleges that it is a good stepping stone for a novice GM. You know, for a GM who's trying to learn sort of how to facilitate games. And I was not the GM for this game, but... I am a person who is trying to learn how to be a better GM. And I would suspect that running any decently written published module for just about any system would probably be a little bit better as a learning tool than this is because this has built into it a lack of flexibility. And flexibility is an incredibly important GM skill.
5: I mean, I think it thinks of itself as a tool for before the novice GM has the ability to be very flexible. And in that sense, it's easy. The only times I was ad-libbing were when you did something that the game couldn't handle, Mm -hmm. and all I had to do was try and find a nice-ish, sociable-ish way to say no.
4: But a module does not require flexibility of a GM. It just allows it. Mm -hmm. Whereas this does not require flexibility of the GM at all. And also doesn't allow it. So I just feel like a a module might actually be a considerably better tool for someone who wants to be learning.
5: So did anyone else think there are merits to porting the text adventure style over to a group game? Because I think I'm a little bit on the side of that possibility, even if there are specifics about implementation that I'm not totally down with.
4: Yeah, and it's clear that other people think that that's a good idea too, because we have played time stories for this podcast. And I don't know where this episode is going to end up. But it should be
1: after time stories. Cool. Uh,
4: but that's, a, for me, a really important comparison because they are both really direct, sort of one-to-one attempts to port those ideas. Personally, uh, I think I might, in a lot of ways, prefer T-I-M-E stories, which is a sentence I never expected to hear myself say. But I do, even though neither port has felt like a success to me, uh, I'm not ready to abandon the idea yet.
3: I feel like, and I'm going out on a slight limb here because I don't know how I would do it, that there is or at least could be merit to creating some kind of role-playing game or out loud text adventure or something, uh, which was you and your friends, which was using the verbiage and language of something that was like a text adventure or something like that, but that took more advantage of the new medium somehow. And made it feel I don't know either interactive or like you're more engaging with it and like you know maybe I'm just asking like well what if we saw something from I don't know Kitty Horror Show who did this or something like that I would be at least more interested to see it because Ghost Ship Enyo doesn't take many chances in terms of experimental design. I could see it exactly like if I booted this up and played this on Inform 7, it would be exactly the same as the thing we experienced in book form.
2: So we might be jumping ahead a little bit in that Bottom of Motion Pros is sort of a 2.0 of this game in as much as you can 2.0 a game that has a fixed scenario in it. (laughs) But I think the game that I want that's sort of like this is not as much a out loud choose your own adventure but a module for totally freeform diceless roleplaying, mm.
1: Mm.
2: Like, just give me a paperback scenario book like this that describes all the rooms and the people in them, and just, let's just do it. You know, the game is a puzzle. It's essentially a maze. You're trying to find the right combination of keys to unlock the right combination of doors. That's fundamentally what all text adventure games kind of end up being. This is no exception to that. Just freeform that and don't, get bogged down trying to replicate the text adventure interface, just have as the basic premise that you're wandering around the space, talking to people, and interacting with stuff, and collecting objects to do things with. You know, it's not art.
4: Another, I think, potential site for innovation that I don't necessarily feel like this game made use of is innovation at the level of plot. This is the third time that for this podcast I have explored the mystery of a derelict spaceship floating in space. I have done it for Dread, I have done it for Cosmic Patrol, and I have done it here now.
3: Yeah, and the Dread was a pre-written one, too. <laughs> yes, and the Dread yeah. was a
4: module. Mm-hmm. And also the Cosmic Patrol one was a built-in scenario oh, You're right, for Cosmic you're right. <laughs> yep. This is a really, really common sort of sci-fi scenario. Like, System Shock 2 is this. And that's totally fine. There are many, many good versions of this story. But for a game that is going to force you to tell one and exactly one story, which any sort of choose-your-own-adventure is going to do, it might be kind of nice, as far as I'm concerned, to have something that feels like unique and refreshing and gripping. This is instead just like, if I sat down and I played this game on the computer and you told me, yes, Carrie, this was written in 1984, I'd be like, "Yep, sure was.
2: It's probably worth noting then that given the sort of relative predictableness of this story, how just badly written it was. And I don't mean the like grammar and wording issues and proofreading issues, which, we can touch on one later. I just I mean, I think it did a pretty shitty job making a spooky haunted spaceship. The text adventure style of description, very short sentences, is is colorless and dry and, and works for a certain kind of dry humor, but doesn't work for the very serious tone that the author explicitly states that they want.
4: And it doesn't necessarily work so much for horror. I think that she has done a fairly adequate job of capturing the style of those parser adventure games, but, like, a lot of those were necessarily horror, and horror, I think, often relies on, like, really spooky juxtapositions and making mundane and ordinary things really weird, and you can do that with, like, short, easy sentences, but you just need to be kind of a, a good writer who has a good eye for, like what's going to feel uncanny.
2: Well, the bigger problem is that horror relies on lots of little details. Yes. And you can't put details that are irrelevant into a game like this.
4: Mmm, that's a very good point. That's a... Yeah.
2: Um, Mm -hmm. if, If you put lots of details into this, then either you have a lot of red herrings and the players don't know which nouns they're supposed to verb, or you have a game that couldn't possibly be committed to paper and referenced by flipping back and forth between pages. And so there's just not a lot of opportunity to build meaningful atmosphere with the pros of the game. And I felt like it suffered for it. Like we didn't completely play through this adventure for a variety of reasons, but even the portion we played, it just doesn't feel like a horror game. The lack of a coherent frame of reference for the character uh, notion of who you are or why you're on this
5: ship all of these things mean there's just no emotional punch and let's be clear who you are and why you're on this ship is technically speaking described the game doesn't fail to have that intro it just but... does
2: it badly yeah it just does it insufficiently
4: it's also the case that you're not isolated it's very strange i think to have you know a horror a moment of horror where you Literally encounter a ghost on a spaceship, and then you can just go back to
5: rubbing items on each other to solve the puzzle. No, not even that. You can go back
4: to your coworker Sunny in the basement of the ship and just be like, "Hey, Sunny, what's up?" And listen
2: to Sunny talk about how Sunny wants some hot makeouts.
4: Yeah, which they do.
5: The tone is all over the place. I would go a hair kinder to the firm. I think the tone lacks discipline. I think it lacks a clear understanding of what sorts of actions will further the tone, what sorts of actions will detract from the tone. And as such, you end up with something more like that Riley declarative Zork style than I think this game wants for the horror setting that it's trying to build. It's also pretty poorly written. It is also pretty poorly written. We'll be gentle here, I think, because at the point where it's pretty clear that I don't think we end up recommending. At the point where that's true, I don't know how hard we have to beat on the writing, but yeah.
4: I thought that the game perhaps had not been playtested because Charles started reading some of the text, which, again, all has to be read aloud by the person who is GMing. And on two occasions early on, in quick succession, he found that there was a word missing in a sentence. And i am just a little bit perplexed as to how that happens because i am a proofreader professionally and the best way to find errors in a thing you've written is to read it out loud so i was like oh i guess this game has been written but never read out loud but it turns out to have been playtested and that was again a big surprise to me
5: there are four groups of credited playtesters in the back so clearly this game was being read aloud but i guess just best I've got, new content and changes added after each playtest to respond to playtest concerns, proofreading not necessarily a major part Mm -hmm. part of
4: that. Yeah, I just don't, like, I I mean, again, if you're writing a game that is meant to be read aloud, it's very hard for me to imagine not being like, okay, so I need to add this line. Okay, great, I've added this line. Now I'm going to read the paragraph out loud to make sure that it makes any sense out loud because... The stated goal of this paragraph is for people who aren't me to read it out loud.
2: Yeah, I feel like it needs some serious copy editing, too. There's just a lot of awkward sentences and descriptions that don't quite make sense, and...
4: Cam Granger, call me. We can talk about it.
2: Editing is possible.
4: We can make some sort of arrangement. I'll proof of your shit. Like, it'll be great.
2: The underlying game and story ideas are worthy and well-conceived but the execution is just not totally there. I have one structural criticism of this as a text adventure, which is that it requires you to explore every single game area and there's nothing gating access between areas of the game except for picking up one object.
4: Which is another thing that makes it difficult for it to maintain a horrific tone, just
2: And it makes it very hard to keep a working mental map of the game world and all the things that there are to do in memory when you just immediately completely spread out. You explore sort of sideways rather than down a path, and that, that's a real problem playing it out loud
5: to me. It also seemed to suffer from a fairly low amount of, of player guidance and player leading. Like, I'm not sure, as the person who is flipping through the game manual reading you things, whether there are, you know, two data points that point to each clue, or whether it's, there's one thing that points you in that direction, And if you don't find that signpost, you wander. And, again, like, that's reasonably consistent with the mechanics of old, old, like, text adventure games. But at this point, especially when you're doing this in a group, with everyone managing small parts of it, I think having two signs to any given city might be a good idea. Can we compare this to
2: a normal lost cell phone? I think we can. Because I think a normal lost cell phone, one is totally a role-playing game Mm
5: -hmm.
2: it's a role-playing game with the digital aid but two is a real meaningful comparison about what kinds of game structures work and don't work
3: for the sake of our listeners, and also me, who don't know what a lost cell phone is in this context- A normal lost phone. A, normal lost, a phone, normal lost phone. What's the deal?
4: It is a game where you have discovered somebody's unlocked cell phone, and you basically go through their life and ultimately figure out like who they were and what they were about and sort of what their central concerns were, and eventually make a decision about like what you're gonna do with the phone based on the information that you found there.
5: And it's fairly similar in this <laughs> that you have a constrained set of ways to interact with the thing mm-hmm. like you really just get to go through and read documents and go through and read documents and every so often some of those documents will hint that like oh I bet you just used your birthday as the password on your dating site profile again you go like ah I bet I can get into the dating profile part of this app now okay. because I was able to find my birthday from over here in the calendar and yeah so it's, it's gated by a series of codes each of which lets you find a little bit more information yeah, which okay. lets you find more code
2: Available on iOS, Android, and Steam, I think?
5: At a pretty low price. Yeah. Like if, uh, if you're interested in this alternative storytelling modus, I think it'll cost you about, like, $3-ish? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's real cheap, it's and real I... brief, and I think I recommend it at the price.
4: Also, I bet it's really good on iOS or Android. We played it on Steam, but I, I bet the experience is actually significantly better. Hmm. Okay. Um, Not on, on, a,
5: on a 60-inch television in high fidelity the way it's meant to be played. <laughs>
4: Uh, nope, I think it's meant to be played on a cell phone. But, Thanks,
2: so that's a game that fundamentally has a similar premise. You know, it's an adventure game where you're in a situation and you're trying to figure out all the backstory about stuff in order to make a decision and do a thing or two. And that game is very tight. It does not contain unnecessary space. And I would argue in one sense it's more of a role-playing game in that the actions you're taking genuinely match up to the actions that the character you are playing takes, whereas this is a game that I would probably say is not really a role-playing game at all, which is something we should talk about before we finish this The degree
5: to which you inhabit your character's role, even though your character is a person who is explicitly like the analyst, the mechanic a science person on a ship, the degree to which that role impacts the way you play the game approaches zero.
3: We have played other games for this podcast that I think we've come down on the fact, or probably knew ahead of time, were not role-playing games, exactly. But they were games that are, in a sense, getting together and doing some kind of storytelling. Like, you know, we did Time Stories and we did Into the Labyrinth. But you're right, I would not call this a role-playing game. <laughs> I think it's as much within our purview as any of those were. Yeah. So, yeah, don't
5: don't take that as criticism. Yeah, that, was,
2: that wasn't a criticism of choice, that was a comment on how the the framing conceit of your adventure game actually affects to what extent it's possible to roleplay in it. Oh, sure, yeah. Whereas in a normal lost phone, it has a fairly brilliant little conceit by which everything you're doing is roleplaying and it's literally the choices that you're making are the choices that you're making, the text adventure paradigm goes as far away from that as possible, and this game, like, in replicating that, boxes you into the worst of that.
4: I will also say that with Time Stories and with Into the Labyrinth and all those other games that we have played, I knew, like, oh, this isn't going to be a role-playing game. I knew that in advance. This game surprised me. Like, I did think that this would be a role-playing game, and then gradually, over the course of our play, I was like, oh, no, this really kind of isn't gonna be one huh
5: that's really going to be specifically the like information dredging and puzzle solving parts of text
4: adventures so i have two questions and my questions are are there useful comparisons here to time stories and also do we think that almost anything was gained by having this be an out loud adventure game rather than an actual like computer parser game. I think that one thing was gained for sure which is that you can look at your sort of human computer and be like okay I use the chisel on the thing right you know that thing and the human computer will be like yeah it works.
5: The human computer can be a more robust tip system if it wants to be so The, you know, rub every object on every other object until at last you figure out what the game designers had in mind at the time thing can be substantially lessened by the mercy system that is a
3: human GM. That's something.
4: That's absolutely something. Is there anything else, though, or otherwise?
3: I mean, honestly, I don't really think so. And furthermore, like, there are ways in which, other than the fact that you're doing with other people, the fact that you're doing this out loud makes it just kind of much more annoying to play in real life than on a computer because... It's, you know, it just takes longer to do things because you have to say, oh, I examined that. And then your friend pauses and looks at the right thing and then says what you're examining. Instead of, you know, on a computer, you can just type that up real quick the computer will give you it real quick.
4: Yeah, I sort of feel like the ideal version of this game, as far as I'm concerned, would be specifically a point and click adventure game where you can like, oh, the map draws itself. And you can be like, oh, wait, there's something I forgot to do. Five rooms ago, open map click on that room, now you're in that room, you know, and, like, pictures and stuff. Like, I think that that would be a better form of this game. We forgot to mention we had to
3: draw a map for this.
4: Yeah, we had to draw a map for this. I had to keep track of my inventory, our inventory, on a piece of paper, which was fine, but, you know.
5: As a person who has literally called together rooms of people to play adventure games and, like, dating sims collaboratively as a group. I'm about as much on the side of doing these single-player experiences in a group as you can get. So there are things about this that I like in the way that I enjoy those. Which are mostly, like, everyone getting to go through a story and experience that story in real-time together. Although, let's be clear, the reason I host these things as parties is because then everyone gets to, like, talk about it and put their heads together. And for some reason, this game explicitly discourages both those things, and I'm just not clear why they took one of the things that would otherwise be, for me, the strength of doing this single-player experience as a group, and said, like, "Mm, don't capture those benefits.
2: I think there is something uniquely fun about having someone read the story aloud to you. Like, that's a primitive... It's a sort of primitive human experience that's very compelling. I also think that text is surprisingly good by itself without a ton of visual aid. I think a narrated story is almost as good as a graphical adventure game a lot of the time. I would still rather just be sitting in a room with a group of people like trying to group play H2G2. That would be more fun than this. This game kind of sucked.
4: Also, this is a little bit of a tangent, but this game had some really odd moments to it. Like there's a room that has a watering can in it that you can't take, that doesn't do anything in the room. It's just this very strange...
5: The game refuses your take prompts almost more often
4: than not. Which is just... I mean, like, a lot of... Like, most games do do that. I've played enough point-and-click adventure games to know that you usually can't take stuff. But it is really weird, especially with something like a watering can. And also, I just think that the absence of flexibility is perhaps particularly frustrating in this game because when you're playing with a real human being, you kind of expect them to be flexible. You know, you kind of expect them to be like, oh yeah, you're close enough to having solved the riddle. Like there was this really, really weird moment where we knew that we needed person X's password. We had person X right there and we couldn't ask him for his password, which is just totally what a human being would do, you know?
3: So, I was going to make uh, kind of a joke 2.0, but if you have something else, you can go for.
2: I was going to propose a watering can 2.0, so... Oh, okay.
3: <laughs> so,
4: Organically, we have reached the 2.0 section.
3: Yeah, no, uh, I, I have a 2.0 for this game, and it is called Buy a Copy of One of Those Give Yourself Goofs Bumps, or Get It From Your Local Library, and read, read that aloud to some friends maybe once through, and you'll get some laughs. And uh, it won't be, like, well-written. And it'll be goosebumps, which are generally bad and not scary. But it won't be frustrating. (laughs) And you'll be able to hang out with your friends and have, at least a kind of fun time for a few minutes. And you won't spend, like, an hour trying to pick up items that you can't pick up.
2: I've got a good rule on top of that. The reader has to... So, you know, those Choose Your Own Adventure books, they end with, like, a limited number of choices at the bottom of each page. Mm -hmm. Don't read those choices aloud. Players have to guess the choices. And you have to bullshit... Reasons why they can't do the things that are not the choices.
4: (laughs) That's actually pretty fun.
2: And and that actually brings me to my watering can 2.0. So this is a hypothetical game that is not this game. That is entirely about the bizarre constraints of graphical and text adventure games. And it works as follows. You have a game environment set up very much like this with a book. This is a game that can only be played aloud with the Game Master reading it to you. However, none of the puzzles actually have solutions. <laughs> and the first like N, where N is a small number but between like 6 and 10, items that the players decide to pick up have to be used to solve the puzzles. <laughs>
4: Oh, oh, sort of like, there's a a, a sort of Japanese apples-to-apples chocolate and cat, I think is what it's called, that is is sort of similar where you have a deck of cards and you're encountered with problems and you have to bullshit some reason why the cards in your hand solve the problem.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's your core mechanic in something that's otherwise structured as a text adventure game.
4: No, I totally like it. That sounds really fun. I think that there's a really easy 2.0 of this game. Where it is a less serious game that is funny and comments on the foibles of point-and-click adventure games and parser games. Like, the fact that we, we, we there, yep, there's a watering can here. No, you can't pick it up. Like, that is the kind of weird moment that happens in text adventures. And if this had been a parody of text adventures, I would have thought it was funny. In this case, I was just like, what the fuck? Why is this here? I'm so mad.
2: To be clear, the fact that there's a watering hand that you can't pick up is particularly egregious when there is at least one reservoir, a leaky faucet, a puzzle that's solved by putting water into something, and the item they give you at the start of the game for no particular reason is a container of water.
4: Well, we use the water.
2: Right, but... That didn't need to be there. You could have instead found the watering can. Yes. And solved the puzzle in a sensible way.
4: K.N. Granger, if you're out there and you're listening and you want to write a 2.0 of this game and you need a proofreader, call me.
2: We'll even playtest it for you.
4: Yeah. No, absolutely.
2: So who's this for? My answer is
4: nobody. This tries to bridge some gaps, but I think almost all players are better off on the stable soil on either side of the gaps
3: yeah like i don't think that this is something that i would recommend to people either as person being a new gm or person looking for like a novel experience or something like picked it up because i had never played an out loud text adventure before and there are some offered by can granger there's some offered by something called parsley games but that seemed like a little bit more generic so i picked this up because you know like oh a ghost ship all right that's okay admittedly we've played that twice already (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) parsley games are all called like castle <laughs> um.
4: yeah no they're even more generic i will say i've invented a person that this game is for you are an office gm and you want to play a module but you really are like i don't want to learn dmd i just i want to play something a little bit like looser and ambi-pambier i think you could use this book as a module and just allow yourself a little bit more flexibility and that might actually be like a decent learning tool look i did it i found somebody who this game is for
3: Yep. Yeah, I think we've probably covered who is this not for, unless someone has more specifics that they want to say. It's not for most people.
4: Could you play this game with
2: kids? Or oh, not necessarily this exact game, but maybe one of those parsley games? I feel like there is a game like this that would be very good to play like with your children. Okay. Yeah. So very good in a family.
4: I think it would have to be a little bit more gentle than this in a lot of ways because this uses some pretty Baroque logic. And children are crazy people and either will come up with the weirdest possible strings of logic or will be unable to follow even fairly elementary logic. So you'd need the logic puzzles to be child friendly. But yeah, I think that there is a game like this
3: I should say first off, I have not played the personal games. Maybe they're great. They just didn't grab me from their presentation. Second of all, when I think of role playing games that I would recommend to kids, I would say something as freeform as possible most of the time. And maybe that just speaks to me being, you know, I, maybe it just speaks to we're thinking of different ages of kids or something. But like, I feel like a kid would get bored of this like real quick, even if it was a little bit more straightforward and a little bit easier. Right. It would have to be funny. It would have to be cute. It would have to be something that would really engage them. Or in a minute. What if the puzzles
5: appeared more readily and were a little more densely packed so that the reasons to keep playing were clear to people who weren't already familiar with the fact that, like, oh, on a long enough timeline, we'll find the way to enter that linen closet rather than encountering three locked doors in the first five minutes of play with can no we, clear keys to enter? Can any we of them.
2: talk. For a second here about how good the Putt-Putt and Pajama Sam and Freddy Fish I don't remember games anything are. about those I games. i only played <laughs>
5: Putt-Putt, but I, I hear you.
2: They, they were genuinely, like, in terms of games of a genre made for children, they do the take a genre, scale it down to the mental capacities of elementary school age children playing these games to play them, and then really do a quality job of making a graphical adventure game that can still be played by children.
3: Yeah, so like maybe if one of those... is So like like you could write some... Like, yeah.
2: I, that's my thought. I played a lot of them like both when I was a kid and then like helping my younger sister play Freddy Fish mm-hmm. is the one that was like geared a little more at younger children.
5: Right. Because it had like, fewer actual puzzles in it. That's a 1940s Chicago mobster, right? You're uh,
2: right! No, it's your sort of proto-Finding Nemo where you have a, like, spunky androgynous heroine because they're a fish named Freddy, (laughs) if I recall
5: correctly. But it wasn't, like, Finley or something.
2: Uh, I know. But anyway, they're they're children's graphical adventure games. I think there is a way of writing a game like this that would be a really wonderful thing to do, possibly in parts, with a group of children.
3: That's fair. I guess... My thing too. I I remember now those games. You mentioned them. You've dredged them up from a hidden part of my memory. And go to the moon. Yeah, maybe I don't yeah. know. Okay. Children are not dumb, and I shouldn't I shouldn't underestimate them. But also, those games are pretty cute, and like we talked about, point and click adventures, I think are much easier to sell a kid on than, like, talk to them out loud about this adventure that they have to, like, remember all the details on and remember the map? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know. I it's... feel like this is this is a middle... Like,
5: you could build a version of this that is a middle point between a bedtime story Okay.
4: And, yeah. Like... Yeah. Especially because children play... I mean, I remember when I was a child, I played all kinds of, like, sort of proto-role-playing games where...
5: Barbie was being forced into a marriage with Ken.
4: Where someone would write on paper... A little dungeon and Hmm. you'd have to go in it and fight monsters and the other child would draw monsters and you'd be like oh no I have to fight this monster did I find a flamethrower in one of those boxes Charles
1: no fair enough
2: I must be underestimating children Uh, uh, writing for children is very difficult obviously like that takes real skill as a writer and and as an understander of children which I am certainly not Mm. But I think I yeah. think there's something there, and I think that actually would be like a really uniquely valuable and fun and interesting and satisfying game experience.
3: All right, fair enough.
5: Oh yeah, it is. It is a little bit more structured than freeform make believe. A little bit like narrative bedtime stories. I'm pretty taken with uh, the idea of adapting this for a kid audience.
2: All right, I so think that's that wraps that's it up. Yeah, that's
3: it. Yeah, we're done. Um, we're all ghosts here. Ooh, Ooh, spooky. I'm trying to think of a pun to end us out, but I got nothing. Uh,
4: Uh, May your travels in derelict spaceships. Be safe and sound, or super
0: cool and interesting. Open Pick trap, trap door. <laughs> <laughs> down get down west. Open painting. In case, in case drop knife, get sword. Open trap, down north, kill the troll with sword. Drop sword, easy southeast, east. Tie the rope to railing, climb down rope. Southeast, get coffin. West, south, pray. Down, slam. South, north, east. Down to canyon bottom, north, drop coffin. Open. Thank
1: you for listening to Parallel Lives. If you want to find the show online, we're at parallelurl.com podcast at gmail.com or the Parallel Lives Tabletop Podcast in. on Facebook. If you want to give us a lovely Christmas present, why not review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio? We'll love you. If you want to find Ghost Ship Enyo, it's available from a little website called amazon.com. If you'd like to find us on Twitter, the podcast is at Parallel Chat, Carrie is at Baroque Emotions. Hugh is at Ionic Blather, Charles is at gush for You with the number 4 and the letter U, and I am at Wednesday Quest. This episode was produced by me, with music by Debs and Errol. Next week, we do our best Igor impressions in our hour and 20-minute episode of My Life with Master.
0: Uh, yeah, uh... Oh, I guess I'll wait. Well, Charles,
3: uh, does the break, thing? But
5: just once, I want us to have dramatic beer openings like the Flophouse. Why can't we have dramatic beer but openings? once
3: we get Stuart Wellington on the podcast, we'll... oh
4: my god! I, I would <laughs> go
5: wait?
1: Yeah,
4: hold on. <laughs> wait, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. This is gonna have to start
2: watching, uh, listening to the Flophouse to to care who his he's is. a really cool dude.
5: He probably be a pretty delightful coach. <laughs> I feel uh, like we
2: spend more time talking about other podcasts than yeah. Let's not who okay. We um, our own <laughs> podcast out. Oh, should be
3: allowed to do. Yeah,
4: we shouldn't be allowed to listen to or engage with podcasts at all. Oh God, no.
3: We should be held in like a tank. Yeah, free of podcasts. Yeah, like he is. Yeah, that old that old old. chestnut. That
4: old rag. Alright, so Is it a we... tank
2: when we're doing science fiction games, and it's a dungeon when we're doing fantasy games?
3: Uh, yeah. And when we're doing horror games, it's... I'm Entombed Within the Walls Themselves. And uh, and when
4: we're playing uh, queer games, Not it's... Not a deep cut, but pretty much spot on. I like that. And when we're playing queer games, it's the gender binary.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh! <laughs> but that's true always. If you came to us here for pro-gamergate screeds... You'll have uh, to catch us on another day when we think completely different things from all. Yeah, you'll have to
4: catch us on another day when we are not the people that we are. No,
5: when when we have, in accordance with an early sci-fi plotline, been swapped with our various yeah bearded, bearded, unbearded, and unbearded, respectively, <laughs> doppels from various <laughs> places and timelines.
4: I, thanks, thanks for
3: pointing Charles to the audience you we were referring to. <laughs>
4: excuse me, I've been growing this beard for fifteen years. Evil Carrie is
5: beardless. <laughs> <laughs> Does e- Evil Carrie has shaved one side of her head, but it's
3: the other side. <laughs> it's the other side? It Carrie, as the keeper of maple syrup, do they have a beard? I don't know. Does maple
4: syrup has a, have a beard? Maple syrup is a chinchilla. Let's a no,
2: no, it is totally possible for, for furred or all over hairy creatures to have beards. I have a calendar filled with pictures of bearded collies and they
5: definitely have beards. I thought this was gonna be a digression on furry art. Oh. Uh I like if there's one thing furry art has taught me other than the sheer capacity of a cartoon anus, it is definitely that dogs can have beards in spite of having faces that are already furred.
2: No, really I have a really lovely calendar from <laughs> my mother and her friend's online bearded collie owners club make an annual calendar.
4: Oh, that's you and I are thinking you know, completely different <laughs> things right now. For anyone
3: who's listening and this is their first episode, I'm uh, <laughs> so sorry. First of all, I apologize. Second of all, uh, maple syrup is, of course, um,
4: our petranchilla. Our, our who pet is capable hasn't been mentioned this season question, so far. To answer your question. <laughs> oh God, you're right. Who is capable of growing a kick-ass boo-manchu.
3: I did want to know that. Thank you. You're
4: welcome hey okay Maple <laughs> <Table Bye>. syrup <laughs> all
3: right um uh,
5: man if, if i were tuning in for the first time i'd hate us
3: <sighs> yeah okay i hate us anyway let's <laughs> dial it down like five <laughs>
4: I'm, I'm trying to put this podcast back you on track quiet your beard <laughs>
1: just, just pet it
4: gently